This episode of The Better Business Show is sponsored by Narrative Matters, creating content that sings for organisations that want to change the world. For more details about how we can help you develop amazing content that really works, check out narrativematters.co.uk. Hello and welcome to The Better Business Show with me, Tom Idle. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up this week. We've given jobs to about 29 people who we feel needed a second chance. They might have um, been people who've had previous sort of criminal convictions or maybe just have been out of work for a long time, suffered from addiction. Cook is completely committed to using business as a force for good and this is one of the best ways for us to do that. Yes, we're talking ex-offenders this week uh, as well as making dreams come true for the staff at Cook, making frozen food, uh, with Charlotte Sewell, a woman charged with making sure that the business has a bigger social impact as possible. Stay tuned. Welcome back. This is episode 22 of The Better Business Show. Thanks for tuning in and coming back to us. Um, in fact, actually, if this is the first time that you've joined us, then, uh, well, lovely. It's lovely to have you. Um, and thanks for thanks for joining us. Uh, there's 21 other episodes for you to, to work your way through, uh, you lucky, lucky people. So, um, yeah, check out the back catalogue at betterbusiness.show. We've met some brilliant, um, brilliant companies, very inspiring companies over these last 20 weeks. Uh, companies like Suga, I think back, God, that was episode four. Suga making yoga mats out of old wetsuits. Um, we had the Half Moon Bay Brewing Company that makes, uh, that's starting to make beer from from wastewater. Uh, more recently, we've spoken to companies like Cooley Cooley making use of Moringa. Um, and supporting smallholder farmers in places like Haiti. Um, God, we've had so many great companies. Webmart was another one just recently. The brilliant CEO of Webmart, Simon Biltcliffe, who's kind of using the kind of ca- uh, capitalist and, and Marxist ideals to build an amazing business. Um, Tom Cridland was another one, a guy making uh, ethical uh, fashion and T-shirts with with thirty-year warranties. Loads and loads of great stories. So, have a look at the the back catalogue and, and and delve into some of those because you know we know we get new listeners every week as we release new episodes and and new people find us. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, remember the the episodes we've done are fairly timeless, evergreen. Uh, so yeah, do check them out. So yeah, back to normal this week after my travels uh, of last week in Austria. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that episode we did with with Heineken. It was certainly tough trying to spin the episode around in in 24 hours of of coming back over over that weekend. Um, But I was certainly keen to kind of get that story out there uh, first thing last Monday morning before the rest of my fellow journalists who were also on the trip started producing their pieces and they now, they now have started doing that so I'm sure you'll you'll have seen those but but lots of great tales of, of Heineken and what they're up to over there in, in Gers in Austria. Um, so yeah so back to normal this time we've got a traditional format for you great story this week in the form of uh, Cook the the frozen food company um, which is great I mean you'll get lots of insight into what they're up to. Uh, I'm probably more excited than I would be purely because they're located uh, just down the road from me here in Kent um, and this is not a part of the world that's traditionally kind of associated with lots of great business stories so it's great that Cook are here um, and yeah and so after our story uh, and we'll listen to uh, Charlotte Sewell who's their 
social impact manager shortly. Uh, we'll get into our regular news roundup. Vicky Knowles is back with us after having the week off last week, so we've got all of that coming up very shortly. One of the reasons, uh, and there were plenty of them actually, I decided to quit my job and start my own business last year was to get my life back. I was commuting too much, I was spending too much time in the office, and my work-life balance was was out of kilter, frankly. Uh, now I work in an office five minutes walk from my front door. I'm around to pick my son Dudley up when he finishes school. I get to take him to the park and play football after work. I get to see him in the morning at night. I get to see my wife a lot more. I can see friends and family a lot more during the week. Uh, so things are so much better. But I guess what's happened in the last year is that my work life and my home life um, are... Well, they're more balanced, but they're also more blended. So, you know, I work early in the morning. I finish early most days so I can do the kind of home stuff. And then I kind of jump back into work in the evening sometimes. Um, I was talking to somebody the other day who works for a a London agency which promotes something similar. They call it this kind of work-life blend where the boundaries between being switched on for work and then being available to enjoy home life are, are much more blurred. <clears throat> and it's it's not something that works for everyone. Uh, I get that, and it, you know, it's something. It's certainly something that's worked for me, I guess, in the last twelve months. Uh, and it is something I think about a lot. Getting that balance right between work and, and play is is tough. And I know it's something more and more companies are are really thinking about. How can you give employees a great environment, really good conditions that's going to make them healthier and happier to then, I guess, you know, be more productive when they are working. And it does seem that more and more companies are keen to also pay an interest in how employees actually live their lives and you know where they live what they do socially uh, what sort of charity they work you know they might do at the weekends uh, it's certainly a conversation that came up recently at the the breakfast session that I attended uh, a few weeks ago I think I mentioned it at the time during during the show a couple of weeks ago it was one organized by Claremont which was all about you know companies and how they find their purpose and their role in 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 building social purpose and as part of the debate there was a conversation about how much companies should actually get involved in people's lives um you know is it the role of companies to provide housing for staff for example something that's been going on for decades hundreds of years and this is how unilever started back in the day with its with its sunlight project um and it's you know it's something that hundreds of companies have always done you know providing housing for, for for staff it's something that i witnessed when i was in costa rica recently you know some of the banana plantations traditionally have always provided uh, lodgings for for people working on the farms uh, but the question is is that right and, and we touch on some of these issues with today's guest uh, charlotte sewell is the the social impact manager at cook a company based in the uh, the southeast of england that produces frozen food meals um, there's no doubt about it, and you're going to get a lot of this as, as you listen to the show, that this is a company that is taking its social responsibility incredibly serious. And, you know, it has a hardship fund in case staff need to borrow some cash to pay for a new washing machine. Uh, it helps people realise their dreams. So staff might want to start their own business or they might just want to, you know, build better relationships with their family members or their kids. Um, it even empl- employs ex-offenders. And that's one of the first the first things we talk about this week. Uh, about two percent of its its workforce is made up of people coming out of coming out of prison. It certainly makes for an interesting story, as you're about to find out. But it also raises a, a number of questions about the role of business and how much 
companies should take on the role of the state? It's a fascinating debate. Uh, I'd love to know what you think, actually, after you've listened to today's show. Please you know, get in touch. Send me a message on Twitter, at Tom Idle, uh, or send me an email, uh, tomidle at narrativematters.co.uk. I'd love to hear from you, and perhaps we can get some conversation going and we can, can read out some of your thoughts and insights uh, on the show next week. Anyway, let's meet Charlotte, and, uh, and we'll find out all about Cook. So, Charlotte, thanks for agreeing to be a part of the Better Business Show, and thanks for having me here in, uh, in Cook HQ. Uh, just around the corner from myself in the, the heart of Kent. Um, let's start at the start. I mean, many of our listeners won't know Cook and the business. Um, so let's get the basics out of the way. Tell us about Cook. What is it? What does it do? And then we'll dive a bit deeper into your story. Cool. Okay. So um, Cook is a food business. Um, we were founded in 1997 and basically we make remarkable food for your freezer. So we cook all our food in our big kitchen here in Sittingbourne and make all of our puddings in Somerset um, and we make those just as you would at home, so using exactly the same ingredients and techniques that you would at home. So no additives, nothing nasty, just delicious food for your freezer. Yeah, and we're surrounded by massive posters in this room here, <laughs> uh, looking at delicious uh, chicken, and, uh, chicken and ham and leek pie and lasagna. Uh, it looks very delicious. Uh, and one of the reasons people might know of Cook, uh, and it's a story that I know has been picked up by many of the, the national newspapers and, and websites, is the fact that yours is a company that employs ex-offenders. In fact, I think it's 2% of your workforce are, uh, are ex-offenders. Um, when was that decision made to, to go down that route? Sure. Well, that's quite an interesting story. I think like lots of things at Cook, um, we didn't necessarily have a really strict plan about how we were going to go about that. It's been more based on kind of meeting individuals who we just really wanted to give a second chance to. And it started to grow into something that we're taking really seriously now. So um, overall, over the last few years, I think we've given jobs to about 29 people who we feel needed a second chance. Um, they might have um, been people who've had previous sort of criminal convictions or maybe just have been out of work for a long time, suffered from addiction, or have just had various things happen to them um, along the way that have made it hard for them to re-enter the workplace. And we just think that we're quite uniquely placed actually to offer jobs to people who might need a second chance. Um, we have brilliant jobs in our kitchens um, and also I think we're quite lucky in having an amazing culture here at Cook which means that everyone who works here is pretty welcoming um, and we found people to um, be really open-minded and incredibly supportive of this scheme so that's just helped us start to get it off the ground. We are definitely um, not the experts in how to do this, it's really new for us um, and we look up to lots of people, we love what Timpson do and we're really yeah. following other employers to, who can hopefully teach us how to do this better um, but I think it was just this feeling that Cook is completely committed to using business as a force for good, mm -hmm. and this is one of the best ways for us to do that, actually, because um, giving jobs to people is such a powerful and su sustainable way to support them, and we have found some amazing people through these organisations who have become some of our best team members, actually, so it's a win-win. Yeah, and, and we'll come on to talk more about how you're creating uh, a social value and, and, and treating people very, very well indeed. Um, I mean, it's a bold move, though, isn't it? the ex-offenders thing. I mean, it, not many companies are doing this. I mean, what, what's the kind of business rationale for, for employing ex-offenders? Well, I think it is a bold move, but I would hope that soon it will be less of a bold move. Um, and I think that's Cook's dream too. Um, the business rationale at the end of the day is that the people that we find who want to come and work here and 
we're getting applications from people. Um, this is not us kind of forcing ourselves upon people who wouldn't like to work here. The applications that we get are often really strong and they're from people who are incredibly committed and determined to actually have a second chance and give it their best shot. And so we found really hard working people. So I think there's a huge business case in just recruiting people who are going to be incredibly devoted to their work and give it their best shot. But also, um, there's something amazing that happens to the teams involved in that. And that's actually something I'd say we might not have predicted. Right. Um, so it is a bold move. And we've had to work with our teams to say, OK, we'd really like to recruit this person. Are you happy for them to come and join your pastry team or your finishing team yeah. or to become a porter? And of course, that has to happen with the team. The team has to be up for that. And sometimes that's been hard. Um, but what we found is, maybe some people who would have said that they might have been a bit of a cynic at the beginning have become the biggest advocates of this work. You know, they've ended up making packed lunches for people who maybe struggle to bring nice food from if they're on day release from prison, for example. Um, and the opportunities it's given them to actually learn new skills, kind of yeah. change their mind about stuff has been amazing. So it's also a way to offer something quite cool, I think, to the rest of the team. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you think that the reason lots of other companies don't do this is that there's a kind of unnecessary fear factor, do you think? I think perhaps there is a fear factor. And of course, with any, like with anything, something could go wrong and there are yeah. risks. But what I'd also say is I just think there probably isn't that much clear support about how to do it out there. And that's what mm. we've really found. We know we've got a bit of a heart for wanting to do this stuff, yeah. but we don't necessarily ha know how to do it perfectly. And we've been very lucky in that we've met some amazing people who've given us great advice about um, the kinds of pastoral support that we could offer, and we're actually trying to develop that now, but also more technical advice about um, the sorts of things that we might want to take into account when working with prisons and how to fit into their schedules. Right. But there aren't really guidebooks <laughs> yet on this stuff. No, there not. is no one saying this is how you go about launching this program. And if we could, we'd love to help create that sort of um, yeah. resource to help other people because we're certainly still desperate to learn from other people so I think it's mainly it being unknown yeah. and maybe it being a bit nerve-wracking and scary yeah yeah I mean people are scared of this sort of stuff I mean what about your customers what do they think about the the ex-offenders working here in the kitchen and preparing that food that they buy I mean a do they know and, and b how do you kind of communicate that to them that's a really good question so I'd say that um I work as Cook's social impact manager and I think sometimes I really want to brag about everything that we do because I'm so proud of it. But traditionally maybe I'd say that Cook's been a bit shy sometimes to talk about these sorts of things. So maybe some of our customers don't know. Um, but when we have begun to start telling this story, and again we're still really in early days of doing this work, um, we've had some phenomenal response from our um, customers so usually it would be through something informal like Facebook you know maybe we've had a particular success with someone who's been um, a, a member of one of those recruitment schemes and they've had a great story to tell and so we've we've shared it through Facebook and then I, I think re recently a comment from a brilliant guy who works here called Red he was telling his story um, and the feedback that we got from that Facebook post, I think we had more sort of shares and comments than any other post we've ever made. Yeah. And the encouragement that he received, he was pretty blown away, I think, yeah. by all these members of the public who just eat our food, who had no idea that in eating our food, they were supporting someone like him to totally rebuild his life. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, he's a legend, we wouldn't be without him. But it's lovely that our customers get to feel that they can be involved in that too. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, still early days and I was telling the story. And I'm sure we'll get a mixed response, but I suppose, I think one of the things that's always really impressed me about the founders of Cook is that they're really prepared to just stand for what they believe in, um, and I think this is something that they believe in, so mm. I hope that um, 
they would sort of their customers would trust them yeah. um, that this is something that yeah that they really support and who are your customers what do we, what do we know about your customers traditionally and then and do they are they sort of buying into the cook values as, as well or yeah really good question so our customers are lots of different people I think they are people they're usually really good cooks and they're people who love hosting right. um, and so they tend to come to cook maybe if they're having a party or if they're just worn out because they've been doing so much cooking all week and they just want that evening to come home and have an amazing shepherd's pie that they didn't actually have to make <laughs> or a backup fish pie for when a friend comes over and suddenly they want to be able to feed everyone but they don't have something in their fridge um, and that could be anyone really so we have a lot of families who we feed but then also cook does a lot of um, one portion meals which work really well maybe you live alone maybe you're older mm. and again that's a lovely way for a kind of daughter-in-law or something to be able to leave mm. things and know that um, an older person definitely has food even when they're exhausted or tired yeah. that they can depend on so those can be our customers too um, lots of young mums and busy adults who have lots to do but maybe don't wouldn't otherwise get the chance to eat together what we also see is people really depending on cook at times of trouble as well as times of joy so maybe um, you're really ill and cooking is just that last thing you wouldn't get around to and you want something that's homely and comforting yeah, yeah, yeah. or um, maybe you know life has just sort of thrown things up in the air a bit maybe you've had a flood or whatever's happened <laughs> we see that happening a lot and the kind of feedback we get from customers there is fascinating because yeah you do just want to depend on something to help you out in those um, yeah, in those times. So we get we get a lot of people like that. But then also, it's Christmas, and you're feeding forty people. And yeah, wouldn't yeah. it be lovely to have beef Wellington for everyone and not have to worry <laughs> about it? So, so what is it yeah. that you do with the food that makes it homely and as if you've cooked it yourself? I mean, that's the kind of the core mission of the business, isn't it? To kind of make this food that doesn't taste frozen, that, that tastes like you've made it yourself. How do you do that? What is well, the I can't wait to take you around the kitchen um, so that you can see it for yourself. But I think it's a hell of a lot of hard work. Um, it wasn't until I came here that I'd seen people so mad about making food this way and so committed to doing it right. Um, the kind of big de heated debates that will happen across Cook over how we should mash our potato and whether or not our fish pie should have prawns in it. You know, we are a kind of business of foodies, so I think that's at the heart of it. Um, but also, so it's Edward and Dale who started um, Cook and Dale's been a head chef and cooking all over the place so he'd really just got the bug of wanting to finesse everything so there are a lot of perfectionists here um, but I think the main thing has been not to scale at such a rate that you would ever lose those techniques um, but also getting the balance for what people want to eat but also the people who are making it so we have a bit of a dilemma sometimes you know when you buy a well when you buy that um, ham and leek pie for example you would have a lovely pastry leaf on the top and I go around the kitchen, I see all the team in, in pastry rolling it out and by hand making those leaves that go yeah. on the top. Yeah. And then what happens? Would we give someone maybe like repetitive strain injury for doing the same thing? And so I think there's a lot of care that just goes into every one of those decisions mm. about how we make everything. Um, and people are also food obsessed in looking for the best farmers and the best meat so that we can control exactly um, how those chickens were looked after so that the meat can be as delicious and tasty as it should be and that's always our aspiration and obviously we're always trying to improve mm. but I think there's a big food bug um, <laughs> that goes around trying to make the yeah and be true to our recipes and we're always changing those and constant tasting yeah. is key so breakfast here is very strange because 
we are committed to cooking everything we made the night before. Right. So you've got poor Ed tasting curries at nine o'clock in the morning oh or whatever God. we've made. So it's this real religious tasting of everything to yeah, ensure yeah. the best quality possible. I'm oh, looking forward to going in the kitchen. Oh, you, you, you touched on it earlier about the culture of the, of the place and the people that work here. Mm. I mean, this is the thing for me that's, that's most impressive, learning about your stories, is how you're treating staff here and, uh, and some of the things that you, you have as benefits uh, and, and reasons to, to, to want to work here. Tell us about some of those. You've got a, a hardship uh, fund, you've got a profit sharing scheme, haven't you? Tell, tell us about some of those things. Cool, yeah, well I think this is born out of Cook has been really lucky in just attracting great people who've wanted to work with us from the beginning and that comes from it being a family run business, I think, and what great, peel, what great people Edward and Dale are because they've just attracted a brilliant gang around them. But as we grow, we're nearly 800 people now, um, how do we sort of capture and bottle that spirit? And one of the first things that we did was kind of try and really figure out what the values were that kept us alive. Um, and at Cook, we actually call them kind of our essential ingredients. Um, and you'll see them around in this room, actually. But um, they're basically five ingredients, maybe. Um, so be remarkable, which I suppose just explains itself, and that we want everyone to do their best. Care, which is eggs. Yeah, um, sure. So taking great care of everything we do, be part of the family, which means making up after you've had a row, um, have fun, um, which is essential, and and you've seen that probably from this kind of building and the way that everyone operates, um, but also this lovely one which I adore, which is Churchill's pig, um, and so I'm told that Churchill loved the pig because he looks a man in the eye, he doesn't look down on you, okay. and this is Cook's kind of no bullshit rule. And I think that's because everyone is just committed to trying to say it how it is and be honest and also treat each other really fairly. Um, and that kind of sums up a bit of the background and the culture of everything that's going on at Cook. Yeah. Um, and I think out of that, loads of other things have happened, some by accident, some by design. So one of them is the Hardship Fund. Um, and that's just a pot of money so that if you're in a time of financial crunch and there's anything that we could do to help you out, there's a fund there and you can apply for it. So maybe your washing machine broke down and it's causing you a nightmare so you've got two babies or maybe your car did, or you need a new tooth, or who okay. knows. But Cook, we're your employer, of course we can help you out, and maybe we can work with you on a plan to, to you know, take that out of your wages over the time that would support you. Um, the one I love the most is probably Dream Academy. Okay. So that is a scheme where if you have a dream, you can let Cook know you have a dream, um, and you can apply to be part of the Dream Academy, um, and basically you get sessions with a brilliant guy called Al who works with you um, on the job, so you're given time just free that you're, you'd normally be at work figuring out how to achieve your dream. And your dream could be, we've had all sorts, so it could be to have a better relationship with your stepson. Okay. It could be to learn to drive. It could be, I work in the kitchen and I'd love to become a member of the accounts team. And we've seen that happen. Yeah, right, um, right. And this is just a way for Cook to say, come on, you work for us. You give so many hours of your time for us. If there are things you're dying to do in your life and there's any way we could help, let's see if we can. And so it's just been an experiment, but we've had some amazing stories come out of that. Um, and then, I guess, more practical things, maybe, like we have an excellent sort of academy for anyone who works in our ops team or our retail teams to see how they can progress through the business, because there's so many opportunities. Um, but also something I've been really um, enjoying getting involved in, which is our Be Remarkable program. So that's one of our values. But how do you be remarkable? And this is our approach to trying to consider the sort of whole self of um, somebody who's working at Cook. So the Be Remarkable um, training is about things like confidence and super strengths and finding out what your values are. Right. And that's just time away thinking about personal development. 
um, really, and that's been lovely because we've been doing it with shop managers, everyone in the office, and that's a great way just to sort of start thinking a bit outside of the box about yourself. And now that's sprung into a brilliant thing where we're having a free-range people farm, and there's a great charity down the road called Dandelion Time, and they offer phenomenal support to people who need respite care families. Um, and it's all based in this beautiful farm, so we're just going to borrow their farm for a day every now and then, take our teams there, the first one's happening tomorrow, hang out in a yurt, and have some time as a team to say, okay, what are our values, how do we want to work together, what could make our team better? And I think what we've just noticed at Cook is we love hanging out with each other, we love eating together, we, our relationships are the key to everything that we do, so yeah, yeah. if we can pour as much fun and time and energy into our relationships, then everything that comes out of that will be to the benefit of this business. Yeah, I mean, and that's at the heart of it, yeah. And so many businesses we've, we've spoken to for, for the show are places you just want to work, and this is another one I just want to work with, please. <laughs> and uh, I'm still thinking about the ingredients. So you've got your your uh, pork for, for no ball, you've got your uh, eggs for care. Yeah. What's fun? Oh, fun is the sprinkles. So all yeah. of the ingredients make a cookie, obviously. Okay, right. um, and so you're introduced to the ingredients, or at least I was, and most people are, through your welcome to cook, which is your kind of first day at cook. Um, and that's usually in a gang with other new starters. They might be from the kitchen or the shop. And you make that cookie together. So right, you right. have the eggs, as you said. Um, and actually, we have, um, so it's actually a packet of butter. I think you can see one over there um, that has uh, okay. the Churchill's pig on. And then flour is for be part of the family. Right. Um, the sprinkles on the top are have fun. Um, which are the key ingredient to making a cookie? Are we missing? That's be remarkable anyway. Yeah, so they okay. all belong to. Um, tell us about the founders. Uh, so mm -hmm. you've got Ed Perry and Dale Penfold. Um, how much do their own personal values come into play in the business? Are you kind of aware of their presence, as it were? Or yeah, loads. Um, so I don't think we ran into Ed when we went upstairs, but his desk is in the heart of the office upstairs. It's just behind me, actually, so right. you can see whatever I'm doing. Um, so he's around all the time and I think that's really important and we have lovely things like every Monday we have a huddle where the whole office um, get together, it's like a mini assembly um, and Ed will always talk at that so he's very much there. I've actually never worked for a CEO who is so around and down to earth so yeah he is very much at the heart of what's going on um, and Dale, the kind of passion and heart of everything that Dale does is just constantly present I would say. So a lovely thing um, that has come in my eyes out of um, everything great about Dale is our relationship with Caring Hands who are an organisation just down the road. They um, offer support to people who might be homeless or vulnerable adults in Rochester and Chatham, principally a sort of drop-in centre for breakfast and lunch. Um, Dale got to know these guys, thought they were awesome and decided he'd just kit them out with a bunch of freezers. And then every time we had leftover mashed potato from making a shepherd's pie, we could give it to them more. Um, and through that relationship, we that's just gone all sorts of different places. We've met amazing people who've come to work with us through Caring Hands. And um, it's just been such a phenomenal way to get to know an organization. Lots of our staff volunteer there. And that would never have happened if Dale didn't just spot great things and build brilliant relationships. It's just one example, yeah, but yeah. I think it kind of shows sort of off the hoof things that happen and also Dale and Ed were ultimately friends and that's how they started this business right. and they just had this great idea and I think something about their relationship has been passed on to lots of other people in the company there's a huge spirit of working in friendship and you know enjoying who you work with yeah. and really that being important and Cook also has a big campaign to encourage people just to bring their friends to work here so if you know people of course you know come and see if you can find ways for them to work with us and recommend them when there are jobs 
Um, yeah. And so I think that spirit is everywhere, yeah. Okay. I, I also wonder about your role as social impact manager. Obviously crucial to that role is measuring the impact you're, you're having out there as a business. A lot of these things you're doing are quite hard to measure, aren't they? I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you kind of measure social value in a, in a kind of scientific way? Sure. I think that's a really big question. I wish I had the answer to that. <laughs> um, and I think a lot of people in this field, if we want to call it the social impact space, mm. are asking themselves that question. Unfortunately, charities are probably having to spend many, many more hours than they ever used to mm. trying to quantify social impact. Um, but I do think it's important work. At Cook, we're still figuring out what that means, definitely, and I think it'll always be evolving. Um, so there are some metrics, if you want to say that word, which always feels a bit too kind of robotic for yeah, me, yeah. that I, I do trust and think have value. You know, I'd love to know and I'm fascinated always by the number of internal promotions maybe we've had a month. Or like you say, you quantify um, who we've recruited by 2% come from this chunk of society. Yeah. Sometimes that can be helpful. Um, and I think there are some areas where that's really meaningful, you know, in the people aspect, maybe it works really well. This is how many hours of volunteering people have done. This is how many hours of training people have had. But sometimes what you're measuring there, I'd say, is um, outputs of activities rather than impact. Yeah. What I would yeah. love to know is what happens after that training. Yeah, what um, those volunteering days actually mean. Exactly. Yeah. And that's it's so hard, isn't it? It is really hard, but there are ways to do it. And that's something I'm really determined to manage to do through the recruitment work that we're doing. So what I'd love to do is develop a system where and it's actually Sean who's working really hard on this with me, um, develop a system of mentoring. So maybe if you have come to Cook and you've had a rocky career history before, you could find a great mentor who works with you for the time you're here, and then they keep in touch with you. Maybe you do move. We might work with a local prison, but your family might not be where you were put in prison, unfortunately. And so you might work at Cook, and that might be great, because it's a brilliant way for you to get back on the career ladder. We love that. But then you might have to go somewhere else to get a job, because that's where your support network is. Fair yeah. enough. But how can we stay in touch just to check whether everything we did for you did help you get your next job? Yeah. And I think that for me is the impact. And I would love to find a way where we could also really have strong uh, relationships again yeah. with people so that we can understand the impact it has had. And that would help us improve. Oh, actually, if we'd given you that information earlier or helped you with maybe managing your debt earlier, that could have helped you move on to the next moment in your mm -hmm. employment. So that for me is where I really want to take it. I think there's other things that we can measure really usefully, and this is a tough area for us, um, but our environmental impact is key, um, and there are lots of ways that you can boil that down, but fundamentally, how I am trying to measure social impact is using the tools of the B Corp assessment. So we touched on it perhaps, but Cook is a B Corp, and this has been an incredible way for us to start to actually um, measure whether we really are walking the talk. And that's really important to us. So if we believe in Churchill's Pig, we believe in no bullshit, we don't want to be a company that's trying to make out we are good if we're really not. Yeah. Um, and by signing up to become a member of that movement, we've committed to taking this test. And I use that test as my measure because I find it so great. It's the most rigorous test I could find out there. And it literally does give us a score for our work with people, our work in the environment, and our work in the community, which also means sort of supporting the local economy. Um, and I use those scores to help me see what we could do better. And the lovely thing is that you can then compare yourself to other food businesses, to other businesses of the right, same size, right. businesses in the UK, or maybe businesses in Europe. Look what they're doing here. And oh, Scandinavian companies really nailed this stuff. What could we learn from them? And that is really helpful when I can therefore sort of set goals, because I think 
the scariest thing is when you want to improve but you don't know how yeah, and you can't right. measure your progress so this has helped me say you know what when we were first certified as a b corp we got 80 points the test gets harder but we still managed to get 83 points two years later Ben and Jerry started here, now they're upwards of 100 points. Where could we be? Yeah, and right. that really helps us. So that's the most useful thing about being a, a, a B corporation is, is that kind of benchmarking, the ability to self-assess, improve. Uh, I mean, is it, more, is it more helpful to you internally than externally right now? I mean, are you using it in your marketing, for instance, and do your consumers even know what a B corporation is? Yeah, so that's a really smart question. I think. We use the rigorous metrics and the measurement probably internally, yeah. but the spirit of the B Corp movement is radical transparency. So actually, we do have it on our website, and you can find it anywhere on the B Corp movement website. You can see our score. So you can see, oh, okay, so the things they're doing with people, they get more points in, than the things they're doing with the environment. Okay, so that's, yeah. where, that's where they could have room for, to improve, which I yeah. love, because it should hold us to account on yeah. where we also want to try and be better. Yeah. Um, but we are talking to our customers about it, and actually I think we see ourselves as playing quite a fun role in being one of the first businesses to be able to talk to our customers about it. So the B for the B Corporation is starting to sneak onto our packaging, um, and where possible we are talking to customers about it. For us, we didn't become a member of the B Corp movement because we thought that all our customers know what this means, great, it's definitely going to convert into more sales. We became a member of this movement because we thought we could learn loads from the other businesses and that has been a huge benefit. We were talking earlier about um, how much we love our neighbours down the road, Elvis and Cressy, who make amazing um, handbags and things out of reclaimed fire hose leather and they have taught us loads of things and are now making lots of things for our shops out of reclaimed wood. So those are the big benefits. Some of them are internal and some of them then end up helping us with external things. Yeah, so I think it yeah. does go two ways, but probably starting off really helping us get our house in order yeah, inside, yeah. it's been great. I think in all the excitement of understanding the business and the social impact you're having and, and some of those stories you've been, you've been telling us about, it, you know, you sort of lose sight of the fact, or at least I do, that you're actually a food business and, and you make loads and loads of different types of foods. I mean, your supply chain must be fairly uh, complex and, and long. I mean, how, how do you kind of, make sure your suppliers share the same values that, that Cook does? Uh, I mean, even is that important to you? I think, yeah, um, I think it's really important to us. Um, yes, we make lots of very different food and we therefore work with hundreds and hundreds of ingredients. And so we do have a big supply chain, but what's very nice about working for a family business is a lot of those relationships with farmers started fairly directly. And of course, okay. as we've grown, we've got many more suppliers than we did initially have. Um, but the spirit of ensuring that those suppliers and their, our relationships with them come out of relationships has carried on. So for all our protein suppliers, our biggest suppliers of all our meat, we have really close relationships with them. So I right. work really closely with the supply team and they will like go up and go fishing in the middle of the night to check to see how our salmon is being fished and check that they like it and they'll come back shattered from being on the boat freezing cold all night or they go and hang out on the farms and make sure they're actually getting close to the pigs and seeing what's happening and then they come back raving about how that farm has got special sort of fields and hedges for biodiversity and they have educational tours you know they really are committed to getting to know exactly who we're working with and who we're buying our food from and that is incredibly important to everything that Cook's doing because as you say it's the lifeblood we are make, we're at the end of the day we're a food company and that's the most important thing to us so it's getting to know and spending really good quality time with our suppliers wherever possible 
but also we talk about our values with our suppliers um, and in the last few years we realized okay we are getting big now and mm -hmm. we need to get together so we now have an annual supplier conference okay. where our biggest suppliers spend time with us so we just had a day a few weeks ago which was great fun partly to mess around and we were mucking around building things out of spaghetti and um, things for half the time but also just to catch up on where we're at what our aspirations are um, and what we're doing next and also um, to let people know exactly what we care about and what our ambitions are. That communication is really important and that's helped us to find suppliers who are in exactly the same headspace as us. One of our suppliers just became a B Corp because they love okay. it too. Okay. Um, but also I think suppliers at different stages in the journey um, can work with us. So one of the suppliers I love is a guy called Cesar who makes our ice lollies um, and they are absolutely delicious. But he was a small outfit when we first started to work with him. And Cook, I wasn't here, but seemed to pour lots of effort into helping him suss out how his kitchen worked and get exactly yeah. how he wanted it. And that's brilliant, it's a win-win for us. We've ended up being able to sell the best ice lollies we think there are. And Cesar was also able to grow, partly helped by Cook. And yeah, that, yeah. that symbiosis yeah. is something really powerful that we can do. And I think as a food business, you get to work with lots of small foodie businesses who are starting out, so it gives us a brilliant opportunity to share anything we've learned, also learn from people who are growing themselves. Yeah. Um, and then I just say simple things. So at Cook, we don't have performance development. So we don't have an official assessment review once a year in a sort of corporate way. What we have is the Cook selfie. I'll show you one later. But um, you basically have a sheet that you can hand out to as many people you work with that you like. Um, and we encourage people to maybe give them to a few people to have a tricky relationship with, people they work closely with, less closely with, formally, more informally. And the sheet is lovely because it came out of something that one of our designers made by accident when she was trying to give a performance review. <laughs> and so you have a speedometer where you rank, do you think I'm nailing it, could I improve, okay. describe me in three words, ring my best essential ingredient, um, what should I be doing next, what are my key achievements on a big rosette. And it's very fun, but it's a really clear and excellent guide actually of how you're doing. And then you put that all together on your selfie. And we realized that that had really helped people in the office and we're starting to use it in kitchens and shops. So why not use it with our suppliers? Right. So we now have a supplier selfie and I saw the first one come through the other day and it's great because it has a picture of how they feel their relationship with cookies, where they want it to go next. And again, saying which of the values could we work on? How could we improve? And it's what have we really nailed? So they're not forced to do that. We've no, really no. welcomed it and said, please yeah. do, because we'd love your feedback. And yeah. of course we have formal feedback channels but there's something about asking that team to get together as a team yeah. and fill out the selfie that gives us the kind of rich feedback we'd never get. And in a way, that's a metric, right? Yeah. Um, but maybe it's just a different way around that metric. Yeah, yeah. and it's also not as, as formal as going down certification routes. Do you do that at all or not? To well, seek out certain farms with certain mm -hmm. standards? So certainly certificates can be really important in this area. And obviously food is really complex, like you say. And so our supply team take that stuff really seriously. But what they found is that as they've got to know farms, they haven't necessarily found that the ones with the badges are the best ones in their opinion. Oh, and so sometimes they might really want to work with a farm because they love everything that they're doing with the welfare of the animals. Um, they love the provenance. So maybe exactly where the food is coming from works really well for reducing um, food miles for us. But maybe this is a small farm and they haven't been able to afford the free range badge. Yeah. 
but we actually think that what they're doing is better than what might be happening at a farm that could afford the free range badge. So we would choose at that point to work with the farm that we thought was better regardless of the certificate. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, yeah. And obviously that depends on us being really thorough in how we audit, how we visit, the time we spend with our suppliers. But Cook's dream is actually develop a cook standard, which stands for everything we believe in, and is this lovely mixture of quality, of welfare, of sustainability, and of provenance, so that we're starting to really be able to take into consideration everything we care about. So is this farm um, having the right impact on carbon, water use? Is it treating the animals well? Is the quality of the food right? Is it is the proximity and the geography right to where we're making the food? There's yeah, a lot of yeah. things to take yeah. into account. And we found that a badge and a standard doesn't always do that for us and we have to take into account a bit more. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does, absolutely. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, earlier we talked a lot about your customers and it was lovely actually because we talked about people and Lots of companies like this would only really think about the customer being the supermarket. Now mm. you don't really, you don't stock at all in any of the UK supermarkets, and you sell direct. What was the kind of rationale behind that? So I think basically, um, what is the driver behind that is the fact that Edward and Dale were really excited about being an independent business, and they really wanted to hang on to that. Um, and I think there's a fear sometimes when you might start to work with a really big supermarket that firstly you could want to scale at a rate that you're not ready to or don't want to and yeah. maybe we'd have had to make compromises we didn't want to make about how we made our food yeah. and if we care about the main thing we care about is delicious frozen food that is made in exactly the same way with the same ingredients that you would at home and I think sometimes to keep up with supermarket orders you would get into a situation where you'd feel like those values had to be compromised yeah. so that's yeah. one thing also I think it's about control in the independence so wanting to make sure that we stay in control um, and we can do things how we want to do them rather than meeting somebody else's yeah. desires and therefore that, that we're performing to the values and aspirations we want to so that's been yeah. really key but then there's also just a basic love of the high street so Ed um, the founder just loves shopkeeping and actually he just spent a few days in the shops again and I think it made him wish he spent even more so we're probably going to lose him to the shops more but I think there's just a love of the British high street and being able to sell to our customers directly is so special. We, the relationships that I have seen emerge between customers and shopkeepers is phenomenal. So we've had people write to us and say, do you know what, I actually only found out that my um, sort of father-in-law had died because it was the cook manager who rung me and said, do you know what, he hasn't been in today to buy his fish pie yeah. and I think something's up. Or people saying that you've really managed to support um, someone, you know, one of my friends who's going through trouble, you know, you used to deliver to her house when the shop closed because she couldn't come in and these sorts of things. And I think that only happens when you have that independence that you can be really agile and we can just give our staff the trust and autonomy to do what they need to do to, you know, serve our customers best. And that's something we wouldn't be able to do yeah. if we were working through a different sales channel. Also, this gives us a lovely way to help farm shops across the UK. So they have a USP, they're selling food that you can't actually buy in a big that's supermarket. Right. And that's, that's a lovely way to attract customers to a small farm shop that maybe otherwise wouldn't necessarily get the footfall that it really needs to stay alive. And that's yeah. something great that we can contribute to. So we love that. Yeah. Well, I mean, Charlotte, it's been lovely chatting to you and finding out more about Cook. It just sounds like such a great place to, to hang out. And uh, <laughs> if you've got any jobs going, I'd love, love <laughs> yeah, to cool, love to I'll give you a call. Uh, but I mean, yeah, clearly competitive, really uh, you know, brutal marketplace that you're operating in. But I think that, you know, you, you stick into these values and it's wonderful. And um, yeah, good luck with it all and long may that continue. Thanks very much.
Charlotte Sewell there, Cook's Social Impact Manager. Plenty to love about that business. And once again, we hear from a company uh, that's one of a budgeting group of B corporations. A fascinating movement of companies doing right by doing good. And I'm sure we'll hear a lot more from, from some of those companies too. All of the details about Cook uh, and what it's been up to, including some some pics I, I snapped when I was with Charlotte down there in Sittingbourne, are online at betterbusiness.show, so check those out now. Right, it's time to find out who's doing what and why with our very short news roundup with Vicky Knowles. Hi Vix, welcome back. Hi, it's been a while, hasn't it? Yes, yeah, did you, it was, it, we, 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 yeah, we certainly missed you last week. How was it? Oh, that's very sweet. Yeah, well, I've moved flats this week, so it's all been changing, actually. <laughs> well, you benefited from the week off then. Yeah, I think that was timed pretty well. <laughs> good, 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 good. Well, listen, plenty of stories this week. Um, I'll kick off, shall I? Um, a story about cement. Uh, if you work for a cement company or you certainly source materials from cement companies, and a lot of companies do that, uh, it's certainly be interesting in this. There's a new report out from CDP which has analysed a group of cement companies worth $120 billion and it says the sector is reaching a tipping point where many companies are going to face a huge drop in, in earnings thanks to climate change and the, any future price that is put on carbon. Apparently the 12 global cement companies with the worst performance on reducing their carbon emissions face a potential earnings hit of 114% of the earnings before interest and tax. And that's even at a low $10 carbon price. Um, so yeah, CDP says the majority of companies' emissions reductions targets in the sector are set to expire in the next few years. And yeah, I mean, they're basically going to have to really up their game, especially with the, the Paris Agreement in place. And this is an industry responsible for f- about 5% of emissions worldwide. Um, so yeah, lots to be done. Lots to be done in this sector, um, and they're going to have to. They're going to have to really improve things. Yeah, I mean, it's just just more evidence, especially in like carbon intensive sectors like this one. That if you drag your heels, you may well have negative financial impacts. Um, I was quite curious actually about the innovations and alternatives in the cement industry. I mean, obviously, if your listeners are already in this industry, you probably know about this. Um, but there are substitutes made from recycled materials that usually find their way into landfills. So that's killing two birds with one stone. Or using alternative aggregate material like waste paper, and that requires less cement. And you can also use concrete reinforced with glass fibre, which makes it twice as strong and therefore you need less of it. And then another alternative is producing concrete in a dry process kiln, which apparently drastically reduces energy consumption as it's more thermally efficient than the wet process kilns. So there's options out there, as I say, like um, some of your listeners probably know about them, but it's just interesting to know what alternatives there there can be for these companies that are in this situation. Yeah, and it's it's hugely energy intensive, but you know, some of the companies in this sector have been doing things for... You know, many, many years. I remember going on a press trip with uh, Lafarge about ten years ago, and and they were at the you know the start of the process. But that's, that's a whole decade they've been been working out what to do to kind of reduce the, the their carbon impacts. But you know, and I think water is another massive issue for that sector. Yeah. Um, I think there's a the, the CD, CDP report says that around fifty percent of cement facilities are currently located in areas of water stress. And it you know points to two uh, cement companies in India 
uh, ultra tech and, and Shri cement where well water shortages exacerbated by climate change are certainly going to restrict their growth in future so you know massive challenges for the cement sector and, and big changes needed so this week for me um we talk about beer and breweries a lot on your show don't we and yeah, you we do yeah yeah so this time it's not so much about the beer itself but the packaging specifically the six pack rings so we know these are terrible for the environment and there are already alternatives like 100 percent recyclable plastic and cardboard but these don't actually address the risk to wildlife getting stuck in it or eating it well the latter is one solution it seems um so florida-based saltwater brewery company have designed an alternative that is biodegradable and edible made from wheat and barley waste that that disintegrate in the ocean within about three months so it works out about 10p more than the recyclable plastic rings the brewery is currently using but should drop if more breweries implemented them as well. And apparently over 50 craft breweries have already been in touch to inquire, as well as Carlsberg. So it's obviously of interest to a lot of people. Um, so the plan is for Saltwater to create a centralised production facility by 2017 around a cluster of breweries. Um, however, the Marine Conservation Society, they've praised the positive step, but they did caution that wheat and barley byproducts aren't a natural diet for marine life, so we don't really know what the effects are. Brilliant. I love it. My, my best friend, Stu, um, who I grew up with and went to school with and, you know, entered that phase where we all started going out and, and drinking at the weekends. And he, I remember he was absolutely obsessed with these plastic ring pools. And really? I, yeah, I think he must have watched a documentary or something at the time about, you know, fish and birds getting killed by getting caught in them. And yeah, he, he would meticulously kind of split them apart, each of the rings, whenever he had one. And it all, that's always stuck with me um, from, from back then. And, uh, I mean, God, uh, growing up, I was pretty clueless about environmental issues and, and wasn't in the least bit interested, to be honest. Uh, yeah. But this story reminded me of that, actually. Oh, he um, sounds like a sweetheart. <laughs> <laughs> he is. Big shout-out to Stu. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> when I was in Austria last week chatting to, and was with, obviously with Heineken, and, and chatting to my fellow environmental journalists about this brewery, I, I rather sort of flippantly said that you know while the whole carbon reduction story and environmental impact reduction stuff is interesting it's kind of well for me anyway a case of well you know it'll probably sort itself out at some point especially you know big businesses like Heineken the cost of energy coming down the price of carbon uh, kicking in and the cost of kind of deploying renewable technologies like solar and biogas uh, will come ha- you know will come down I just think well the whole thing will just sort of take care of itself at some point and I wonder whether I mean it's probably it's probably too flippant a comment to make actually because I think it's more nuanced and complex than that but I wonder whether this problem of ocean plastic and consumer goods interfering with uh, you know the ocean and the species in the ocean is a problem that will just sort itself out at some point where this type of packaging uh, by saltwater brewery will just become a mainstream thing and, and in the end it'll all be nice what do you think yeah I, I like that that dream <laughs> very much so I mean the, you know just things like you know companies going zero waste and stuff it's just completely normal now whilst before like zero waste what the hell is that like it does seem like these things just get adopted and then it's ah that's that's that solution you know well this is it and, and, and it's, a lot of it's all about cost and as soon as you know you, you just get well, it reaches a tipping point and more and more companies will start doing it. The cost will come down and all of a sudden it'll be it'll be mainstream. Well, here's hoping anyway, because obviously ocean waste is a massive, massive problem. And that's another issue we always talk about on this show, isn't it? 
ocean waste it seems to come up time and time again but um i think that that's a reflection of you know the state of the world tom yeah no this is it um so one company that we do talk a lot about is marks and spencers and i never really know how much our friends over in north america or other parts of the world actually know um marks and spencers um well but it is it's a fairly large uk retailer clothing food homeware uh, mm. I guess most people in the kind of better business sustainability space know of M&S because of Plan A, which is their kind of wide ranging strategy dealing with all sorts of sustainability issues with lots of targets. Uh, well, this well last week we had uh, an update on uh, M&S's progress against Plan A and there were plenty of highlights. Um, its charity donations helped reduce food waste by 9%. It's got rid of the, the plastic microbeads. Again, we're talking about the ocean again. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's got rid of those uh, in, in a number of its products. Um, it's, uh, it's only certified sustainable palm oil being used in M&S branded products. Uh, apparently, nearly three quarters of Marks & Spencer's products have an eco or ethical quality in them, uh, whatever that means. Uh, it's cut its energy use by almost 40%, its water use by almost, well, just over 30%. Um, so, it's, you know, it's making really good progress. And um, But most interesting for me was the fact that alongside this update, the company has actually produced its very first human rights report. Um, and I tweeted about this in the week, but I think this could well become a, a growing trend for, for corporates um, as you know, human rights, living wages, modern slavery, all these things become more of a, a substantial thing that, that companies really need to be looking at. And uh, particularly in, the, in their supply chains and M&S, like most supermarket chains, produces hundreds of thousands of products. Uh, apparently, the company's joined the UN Global Compact, and this is their, their first, first human rights report. Um, and they're going to be doing this more regularly, hopefully. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how many of these reports you've seen, Vix. I mean, it doesn't particularly. It doesn't actually say a great deal if you actually read it. But I think it's very much about putting a marker in the sand to say, look, you know, this is something we're going to be dealing with. Funnily enough, what I kind of found interesting um, about that that sort of release was. Uh, um, was it Steve Rowe? I think um, he wants to put Plan A very much more in the customer kind of. Apparently, Plan A is being part being put as part of the customer marketing team where it wasn't before. I gather, yeah, okay. um, right. which is interesting because I'm quite curious as to how much of this stuff, of this Plan A stuff, their customers already know about. So you know, you've got the swapping campaigns, which actually involve customer participation obviously they know about that but what yeah. about for example i heard that all their hangers are recycled so when they're done with like if the customers don't want to take them home they're melted down into new ones so they're reused until they're like broken and then the right. metal melted down and the plastic and then they're just made again but it's like you know i i mean you know this stuff because we're in this space like but my mum shops there all the time and i bet she doesn't know know this mm. stuff it's, it's just quite interesting like i think it's great stories um so it'd be, I think it's awesome if, if the customers get to know a bit more about what goes on behind the scenes. Um, I, I didn't know they were doing that. I mean, yeah, I didn't know that, it, that Plan A was become more of a kind of a, a consumer marketing uh, part of their story. Interesting. I mean, yeah, you're right. We, we know about all this stuff. Consumers don't necessarily know it. And some companies have dabbled with trying to connect the stories up with consumers a, a lot have just kind of given up. And I mean, you know, talking to Heineken last week about that that very very you know very issue 
how do you how do you communicate the fact that these these you know the beers are being brewed by renewable energy? Does the consumer even even care about that? And actually, the reality is they don't. Um, and they're not you know they're probably never going to see that as a as a differentiator and a reason to buy that beer over another beer. Um, but you know if it if it does warm you to the brand that you're you're learning about those stories and you're you know I just encouraged by what they're doing. I think that there is something in it. Um, but yeah, I think M&S does a very good job at, at, you know, the way they, you know, the messaging in the stores and the way they try to communicate with consumers. Yeah. Um, but whether they're getting through or not, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I do. I remember even from when they began, I remember seeing seeing signs up about Plan A and I didn't really know what it was. Like, mm. you know, reducing salt and even stuff like that. And it's, it was under Plan A. And I was like, what's Plan A? Because there yeah. is Plan B, I just I didn't really know what it was, but yeah, I mean, obviously it's evolved and stuff. So, yeah, very interesting. So many private companies have adopted zero deforestation policies, like McDonald's, Unilever, and Mars. But this has not been matched by government until now. Um, so Norway has become the first country in the world to commit to zero deforestation at least as far as the Rainforest Foundation Norway is aware of, who, by the way, have worked for a number of years to make this happen. So that means the government's procurement policy will become deforestation-free. Um, the requirements will need to be elaborated on, but the committee requests that the government imposes requirements to ensure that public procurements do not contribute to deforestation of the rainforest. Uh, so in 2014, Norway made a joint declaration with Germany and the UK at a UN climate summit in New York, pledging to promote national commitments that encourage deforestation-free supply chains. So could the UK and Germany be following in Norway's footsteps? That could be quite interesting. Yeah, it's a great move by Norway because governments are such you know, massive buyers of, of stuff, aren't they? Particularly paper and, and you know, office equipment and all that type of stuff. So it's a, it's a great move. Uh, yeah, it's exactly the sort of thing we want to see our dear country do. Uh, and... You know, I mean, here in the UK at the moment, the political agenda is so, you know, very much dominated by the EU referendum debate um, and, you know, conversations about the economy and immigration and all that type of stuff. And I just can't wait till June 24th when all that stuff is out of the way. So at least we can get back to attempting to get some of this environmental stuff on the agenda. But it's, it's not going to be easy, is it? Vix, great to have you back. Uh, thanks for joining us once again. And we'll see you again next Monday. Yep, see you next Monday. So that's it for another week uh, on the Better Business Show. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for coming back to us. Uh, don't forget to subscribe via iTunes or uh, visit SoundCloud and, and check out our back catalogue of episodes. Uh, but we'll be back again next Monday. So until then, goodbye. Goodbye.